0: Welcome to The Unplanned Show, where we explore the impact of disruption, strategies for transforming how your teams spend their time with respect to problems, and emerging trends that are changing the nature of problems and how we manage them. I'm your host, Dormain Drewitz, and these episodes are broadcasted live on most Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific time on PagerDuty's LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitch channels. Please leave a review and feel free to send any feedback to community team at pagerduty.com. So here we are with our guest, Keith Newburn. Keith, um, say hello. Howdy. Um, that's a very appropriate Texan uh, welcome. Um, even though you're not in Texas, and we'll get to that. Uh, Before we get started uh, with today's topic, which is all around defining AI ops, one of those words that I I feel like people love to hate, and yet you go to conferences and places and, like, you know, there's people lining up to go to the session about learning about it and how to get started. And so, um, you know, and there's, like, 15 different definitions depending on who you're talking to. So, you know, this is a, a good time. Several analysts have just recently put out various kind of uh, um, you know qualifier reports and so you know this is a good opportunity to kind of like dig in and just just talk about like what makes sense. Um, Before we get into that let me just quickly touch on Some of the upcoming episodes that we have planned here at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. We're usually on time. Uh, Apologies for the late start today. Next week, we'll have Heather Hinton, uh, PagerDuty's own Chief Information Security Officer. The following week, we're going to have Martin Van Uh, Who focuses on automation here at PagerDuty? And he really wanted to dig into platform engineering. So, you know, he's been working with customers over in EMEA. Um, That's a topic near and dear to my heart. So, looking forward to digging into that. We have James Urquhart. We had to reschedule this one. Um, He put out a book in the last couple of years on flow architecture, James Urquhart, from uh, going way back to Sun, and, uh, you know, also an expert in sort of the, the platform world. Uh, but I recently heard him give kind of a talk related to his thinking around flow architectures which actually kind of relates a little bit to what we're going to talk about today with that let's let's come back let's focus on um, defining AI ops today and uh, you know first of all Heath you're you're normally based in Texas but you're you're dialing in from somewhere different this I'm I'm still drinking my tea even though it's it's afternoon Um but it might be a little bit late for you, from what I can tell, for whether it's tea or coffee. I normally like to find out, are people drinking tea or coffee, what's their their go-to. We have we
1: have, we have moved on to Kirschwasser at this point, so I'm in uh, I'm in Heidelberg. It's uh, a little after ten o'clock at night, and uh, so yeah, it's uh, been a good day, productive day. Um, but yeah, we have we've moved well beyond tea and coffee at this point, so. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Um, Okay, well, someday, you'll have to reveal whether the cure would normally be going into uh, some coffee in the morning or in some tea, not that that's recommended by any medical professional. But, um, you know, that's, that's still like, I like to see where people fall on that. But, you know, let's just to get kind of started, uh, you know, the AI ops, if you had to sit down right now and define that for someone, Heath, how would you break that down in just the simplest of terms?
1: Uh, you know, what's. I think you really glommed onto it, which is if you come back and, and look at. So here's here's actually a fun bar bet in the Bay Area or anywhere there's a bunch of geeks is that um, AI ops actually started as algorithmic IT operations, not artificial intelligence. So, um, and it's it's really grown over time. So Gartner came up with it initially, but if you look at how Forrester defines it versus 451 Research versus Gartner. Um, versus GigaOM, everyone had really has got their own sort of definition of it, which I think is actually great for you if you want to, you know, bring this into your organization, because um, I know any of my dear friends in like, you know, SRE or DevOps, their eyes have immediately rolled to the back of their head, assuming they've even bothered to tune in, you know, to this, um, because so often AIOps has been overpromised and under-delivered. In particular, uh, you know, AI is going to save us, right? And I saw one vendor who who actually had an advertisement. It was so, I felt so embarrassed for them where they said, we make IT ops a black box, you know, with their AI ops offering. And it's like, well, tell me you've never worked in large-scale operations without telling me you never worked in large-scale operations, you know, it, or horribly complex things around what we do and, and how do we drive it? So, so really, Dormain, what I think about is that AIOps really just, I just wanted to do three things for me, right? One is reduce noise. Um, in any large scale organiz- organization I go into, there's at least 30 monitoring tools, right? Cause you're gonna have a database specific one. You're gonna have four or five cloud specific ones. You're gonna have your various, um, you know, VMware vCenter. You got So everybody's got their own monitoring around that. And all of them are producing alerts and noise, logs, all kinds of other stuff around this. So reduce my noise, right? Help me focus on the things that matter. The second thing I want to do is I actually want to create context um, because it's not enough to say, you know, hey, great, you know, Dormain, I got a dog fox 977 error in my sequel Cool. <laughs> what is, that? is that prod or non-prod? Is there an SLA or SLO against it? Um, you know, am I spinning up the, all the troops because it's 3 a.m. on a Saturday? Well, if that, if that error is, hey, it's, you know, my HR system and everybody got paid this weekend already, what do I really care, right? Nobody's going in and checking, uh, you know, their performance reviews that time. But at the same time, though, but if my, um, if my customer signup is 10 15% slower, we're getting everybody up, right? So create that context for me. Help me understand the meaning and what these errors mean and how I begin to drive the resolution around them. And lastly, remove the toil. Um, So how do I remove that capability of, of having to constantly go out and do a bunch of manual efforts? When I think about, I spin up things, um it is in response to stuff you know so let's say that i'm the the network person right and every time i get on a call i do an if config an ip config a tracer out of HopView, view and netstat look at the mpls settings dump my virtual switch settings all the stuff a good network person would do to make sure it's not dns because it's always dns and it, you know and make sure i kind of get around that well how do i remove the from that? how do i make sure that i'm just you know having that automated response all the time and, and that's really what I think. If I can get AI ops to do these things for me, reduce noise, create context, remove toil, then what I do is I've created a system that's not built for you know, the smartest person room, that's not built for the person that's kind of has, you know their, their butt has been in that seat for 15 years but the newest people on your team the the people that don't have the experience the backups how are you going to grow your sre how are you going to grow platform engineering how are you going to expedite devops well i need to get my my most junior folks enabled as quickly as possible that's the promise of aiops and that's why i'm so excited about it is that not for this deep ai ai capability that's going to you know somehow take away all of our jobs but more of enable um, the the newest members of my team to work with the same level of experience as the most experienced people on my team.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And I like how you're kind of almost using that. Like, how do you how do you find um, a least common denominator uh, sort of approach so that you're not solving for the corner cases are the most complex, you're simply putting a framework in place that raises the bar, raises the tide and all the boats, that the whole team can operate more efficiently. And just to kind of poke poke at a few things, right? So reducing noise, I was gonna ask, okay, the why, and you mentioned, right, like organizations have 30 plus, I've, I've heard folks like, well, if I could just get everything onto XYZ, monitoring tool, but You know, once you're past a certain size, you know, you're right. I think there's been various research and studies I found show it's like at a minimum, you've got five to 10, right, uh, for 90 plus percent of organizations, including fairly small ones. And if someone at a sizable organization can figure out how to move everything onto a single monitoring system, they should probably write a book on that and sell it, because I think a lot of other people would love to read it. You talked about help me focus, like, how, how do you measure success with this sort of framework of, like, reduce the noise, create the context, and remove the toil? Just thinking about, okay, what, what are the before and after things that's, like, you know you're on the right track when you're able to see X,
1: yeah, and and the thing is, in IT, we tend to gravitate towards those things that we can wrap our arms around, right? We're human. so the easiest one. Uh, I want to do some TTR, well, you know. Of course, you do. You know, well, welcome to the world, right? It, you know, and and so I what I what I talk to people about is, look, everybody wants to go faster and save money, right? It's motherhood and apple pie. It's king and country. It's you know whatever is your core value set of the things you are. And the thing is, we can tend to sort of value those in in meaningful and specific ways. So we, you know, so we like to measure them because those are the easiest, right? But the real question is, are they most meaningful. Um, I, I, I was listening to a client, and um, they actually happened to fall in love with PagerDuty. They they had gotten all the value out of it. If they wanted to saw an eighty percent reduction in MTTR, seventy percent reduction in MTTA. You know, all the MTTs off the off the you know the charts. They were they were all over it and they were so excited and they went back to management they wanted to buy a few hundred more licenses and got completely shut down and the reason was is that to senior managers like well that's kind of what i pay you folks for is to solve problems right and solve it quickly why am i going to pump more money into it that's your job um and and that's one of the things that we kind of fail at inside of it is we are really bad at telling our own story at patting ourselves on the back um, at being able to drought because we're sort of the moles and trolls in the basement, you know, shove Mountain Dew and, you know, fried burritos underneath the door every 48 hours. Um, and, and we don't tell the wins. We don't explain the value. And so the value, when you talk about the, the outcomes of it, of course, we love our DORA metrics. We, you know, if I can figure out how to get smarter about you know, reducing my change failure rates, reducing MTTR, um, classic ITSM med- metrics, you know, meantime between business failures and others, of course, I want those. But are those actually meaningful to the business? Have we explained to the business why they why they're there? So instead, let's draw that line out, right? So back to my friends that had that eighty percent reduction in MTR. What if instead we had gone through and, and done a little bit of digging and said, "Hey, within the organizations where page had been deployed, they saw a forty percent reduction in turnover because they were able to reduce." Um, the uh, alert fatigue, and people started enjoying working there more because they weren't constantly on call, they didn't always have to be the smartest person in the room when they were there. And how much of that, so if you didn't have to go out and rehire eight or ten developers of, in which two or three of your seniors, how much money was that saving the organization? So instead, what I want people to think about in this AI ops arena is, you know, internally focused on, um, look, if I can move from break fix to actually taking my smartest people to build, how much faster are my releases going to go? How much easier is day-to-day work going to be if I'm not always that person that has to be called? Um, how much uh, am I going to be able to improve the overall developer experience, right? We, we DX is a real thing right now that a lot of companies are starting to measure and think about because of the value of that retention and how much you know, more people can bump into it. And that's before we even get into do things like what is the real customer experience, right? If I can draw a line to say, you know what, if I can improve the value of what I'm producing from my app because I, I now i am reducing my technical debt, that means I'm going to be able to have better customer experience, better availability. That's better CSAT, which leads to better NPS. That's how we get out of the basement, Draw the line between, hey, by embracing these capabilities, taking this tech, using these business partners in this way, I can actually improve your NPS. That's how you get a seat at the table. That's how you're talking to your CFO, your CIO, your CEO. That's how you get notes put into the notes to the shareholder on what we've done this year. Not in reducing MTTR, which is important, but in improving how
0: customers perceive you. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think, as I think about some of the ways that I've looked at over the years in terms of conveying that value, you know, uh, I I sometimes call it the story of the app, right, which is, if you're stuck down at the infrastructure level, um, or, you know, or even at the platform level, but at the end of the day, what the business cares about is like, what is that application that's in the critical path to revenue, and you need to get to know that, app. you need to be able to invite that application to dinner, right like first name basis and so that's the what i'm hearing you describe is like that's how you kind of convey the value of ai ops or any system that is you know reducing noise providing context and, and eliminating toil all of those activities need to be connected back to an application that's being supported which have developers that are working on it that have features in their backlog, which have customers who are trying to transact through. Um, granted, you there's there's more applications than than exist, but if you have an application in the critical path of revenue, you're going to have a much stronger case. So that makes a lot of sense. I want to come back to we mentioned at the beginning, like lots of different definitions, and what are some of the things that you see in, you know, some of these different definitions out there, whether they're coming from vendors or they're coming from, from analysts, like you don't have to name names, um, but what are some of the attributes that you say w- would say are like, hey, these are the things to call out that are important, what to look for um, between some of these sort of different ways of, of evaluating systems that, that do this in terms of reduce noise, create context, eliminate toil.
1: Yeah. If you look at, for example, the way that Forrester just rolled out its latest um, you know, AI ops pieces, so Gartner used to talk about domain-specific versus um, domain agnostic, which I think is still a pretty good way of looking at the top-level problem. Um, so Forrester took it a little bit different, like we just uh, in the, the process-centric was the latest one that they had done, and they were differentiating that from the technology-centric. Um, and and that was really about uh, what's happened is the all of the APM observability vendors have said we're AI ops, right? Because it's a massive like there's a it's a 24% CAGR market. It's constantly growing, um, and depending on what definition you look at, it's between nine billion and 36 billion dollars that's out there. So everybody's trying to glom onto it and say yes, you know this this is what we do. The thing is for the observability APM vendors, it works really well if. You instrument everything inside of that, right? Which is which is great and tremendous, um, but it's also you know a very very expensive. B it it it, it is um, it is kind of the antithesis of the spirit of AI ops, um, and, and because I, one of the exercises that's really interesting for my enterprise clients that I'll do is how many times. Do you play pay for AWS metrics, right? For an EC2 instance metrics, you know how many places that go through and do that. So um, that's one of the things I look at is you know when you instrument things like that and what is it going to get to. So that's one thing to pay attention to is um, when somebody says they're AOPS, what are they really meaning and what are they really understanding? So if you look kind of the agnostic space, there's really only a handful of players out there. Um, and, and what we've seen is, you know, Big Panda ha, has done really, really well in, um, in some of the ServiceNow environments and what they've done around the CMDB and stuff. Um, we There was just a bunch of big news that came out right now uh, about MoveSoft. They just got, uh, they announced, Dell announced they were going to acquire them. Um, they've actually really struggled in this space. Uh, and uh, so it's, it was really wild to see this happen um, uh, in terms of, the, you know, they've had a lot of um, announcements about growth and things, but even when this was announced, they said they have about 140 customers, uh, but they've been in existence for 12 years. You know, so that's <laughs> not a lot during that time. So, um, and they've had issues with how they actually, they're charging and their move to the cloud. So, so it, it's been really, interesting. and then there's ServiceNow, which is, you know, quote agnostic, but you know, ServiceNow is always, uh, uh, out eating the world and, and those that have made massive investments in their be with discovery and dependency mapping and the rest of the ITOM suite, they're seeing some value, but you know, it's a long hill to get there. So, um, what, what I try to do is, is sort of pick apart from, from those, from that, from that landscape of what are you really trying to do? Um, and, and where's your sort of center of gravity in the organization? Um, So what I've looked at is inside the one thing the APM observability vendors have been now is via things like open tracing or whether it's classic Jaeger or whatever else, they've been able to get pretty good um, views of the environment. So discovering those applications, like you talked about, the one you take to dinner, it's really important to know what are all the pieces of that, right? Who all are you having to invite to dinner to get there? Um, And they're starting to do a really good job of that. Um other, applica- other um, vendors, it's a much more uphill kind of thing if you want to go that way. And I think that's one of the things that I've seen about PagerDuty is with that not having that reliance on things such as a full-blown CMDB or having completely mapped all of your applications, um, you know, just really poking it. Hey, what do I have to have to actually get started? And and I think that's the real trick to this, is that if in order to get started in AIOps, if it's not, you know, hey, you need these 16 prerequisites and you need three months of data and you're going to have to go do discovery and we're going to have to have a full inventory, um, you know, things are going to get very, very difficult very fast. It's almost like going backwards and not getting that value from it. So what is the the smallest thing uh, uh, that I can begin to get started with? And also beginning to think about, you know, so, you know, talk to me about rules. And, and rules start to get, you know, super gorpy very fast. But in, it, what the easiest way to think about it is that classic ways of doing event management, which is the core of AIOps, is really nothing more than, you know, building thousands of if-then-else case statements, right, where you fall through the tree of stuff. Um, like I was talking to a, um, one of the largest auto manufacturers in the world, and they had a classic net cool environment that had 150,000 rules in the rule base. Think about that. 150,000 individual rules. So it's this giant Jenga tower that you're afraid to push anything in or out of, right? It's not even, can I fix it? But can I even remove it? If I remove it, what's going to happen? So the whole thing comes tumbling down. And beginning to rethink that um, into things like what we've done at PageRD is build a conditional language, which actually removes a lot of that classic problems that are around that. Uh, You also can't do things such as nested logic uh, inside a classic if-then-else statements, which is what our conditional language does. So rethinking the way that you approach the core of your event management, rethinking also how easy is it to get stuff in. I think this is one of the the things that it often turns into this massive, well, I hope you have enough smart API people to bring all these things together. And then you're gonna have to build um, a set of capabilities that are gonna normalize the data that is coming in because you don't have a common event format or or whatever else. And that was another thing that I thought PagerDuty has done really well is by taking our 750 plus integrations being able to say, hey, you snap it in. And not only is that integration pre-built, but how I'm going to pull that data in and put it into a common data format is already done for you. So um, how do I move quickly? How do I integrate multiple things at speed? How do I build the rules around them um, at ease? And how do I you know, ensure my total cost of ownership isn't going through the roof if I have to pay for instrumentation of everything?
0: Okay, thank you for summarizing that. I was, I was going to say, it's like, what I'm hearing from this is, you know, as you're looking at uh, across the, like the different definitions out there, there are approaches that are, you know, can be like extensions from monitoring and observability capabilities, but then you're limited by what is the scope of what that um, monitoring and observability system is, uh, instrumented to and this kind of comes back to the question or the comment earlier where you know there is no if by and large there is no one observability system to rule them all so then you're thinking about well, what do i do with all these other systems how can i create the best context and mm-hmm. get the best noise reduction and ultimately get the best toil reduction if I don't have all of the data actually in one place, which kind of points you towards that more agnostic approach. So when you're looking at that agnostic approach, just to kind of recap and make sure I'm hearing this, you're you're sort of getting at like, okay, from there, the sort of the flip side is it's not just, hey, you know, an extension of, of monitoring, then you're looking at, well, then what does it take to set this up? And the things to think of there is, you know, do I have to change data formats do, what do I have to do in terms of rules? How sophisticated can they be? And I, what you described with 150,000 rules, to me, smells like tech debt, right? It's just a different kind of tech debt than in your application stack. It's yeah. kind of in the surrounding stack um, because that's a lot to maintain and yeah. and how quickly can you change it? Um, and so I feel like I missed something there uh, but like, you know, ultimately that kind of how long is it going to take if I have to sort of take this approach where I need to be um, the the listener of the listeners, right? The watcher of the watchers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How long does it take to stand up the watcher of the watchers? And those are some of the things to to look for. But I do feel like yeah. I'm missing.
1: Yeah. And I think, you you know, I mean, I like the watcher of the watchers. The the way I describe it is, and, and you'll hear our vendors, you know, say this all the time, of, well, we're going to be your single pane of glass. Well, hmm. there's no such thing, right? Because guess what, if, I, if, I'm the, if I'm the EC2 person, I'm always gonna go back to CloudWatch. If I'm the Oracle person, I'm always going back to OEM. If, if I am um, you, you know, the, the VMware person, I'm always going back to vCenter because there's all of those things, right? That's, those are in-depth capabilities that I'm gonna have not only for the monitoring, but the management of it as well. So the way I describe our solution is more of a first pane of glass can I get everyone kind of on the same page as, you know, we say down in the South, get everybody on the same page of the hymnal. Um, so that we know where to start. We know where things meet. We know where to begin. And then you can come back as needed to these other things in launching context and things like that. But yeah, that that try and, you know, jam everything into one place to be all things to all people. Um, you know, that approach has failed again and again and again. And I think being able to think of it as, hey, if I got at this aggregation point that gives me the starting point everyone knows where to go from that gets a whole lot more interesting.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for the perfect setup also for our guest next week, talking about the, the death of the security single pane of glass. Yes. Um,
1: and, and yeah. So- showing, showing me that list is actually kind of cruel because I feel like the really cheap opener for the rest of the month, because <laughs> those are all some brilliant. I mean, I've heard Martin before. Uh, I've been a big fan of Jamie Mark Herc- work for a while, and I am a super fanboy of Heather's. Um, I was crazy excited when she when she joined us here. So yeah, I uh, so hi from the cheesy opener for the rest of the the next three weeks. So uh,
0: well, we'll take it. This is good stuff. Um, you know, there's one other thing I wanted to come back to, and and sort of again speaking to that future lineup, uh, I I could see your head was nodding when I mentioned like this this flow architecture thing that James is talking about actually has relevance here, and you know just to sort of I'm, I'm curious your thoughts like that resonated with you. And I think it kind of connects to this idea of like, it's not a single pane of glass. Right. But it's this idea of like, where are the events flowing from and to and and why? And yeah. like, how are you oriented for that flow state, as opposed to kind of like thinking of things in a static way. And I have one other question to try to squeeze in. Um, but yeah, tell, tell me a little bit about like, what kind of resonated for you there in terms of AI ops, defining AI ops, coming back to our theme with mm-hmm. that notion of of like flow architectures, which is really sort of there's an event driven model there. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I think it's exactly it's the event driven piece that really resonates me in, in a couple of different ways. So, so one is you know back to sort of the um, our conditional language view of the world and the way we think about things is that what we're effectively defining um, is a state engine, right? So that we're able to come in and pull a piece of that. And, uh, you know, the absolutely brilliant Frank Emery, the product manager for our event orchestration, um, has has done some amazing work with his team on being able to do this. And and so by being able to take this an event-driven, automation-first, people-centric, holistic view that we've done at PagerDuty, being able to drill into that and say, now when we get these events, how do we process them in the most efficient way possible, but with the most power as well? And that's really what this conditional language has done, is being able to drive uh, across this, so to create that flow and say at any given point, how am I going to be able to enrich this with new information? How do I take um, automation-driven actions based on this with very fine-grained details? How do I do things such as um, uh, drive a... How, how, I, how I almost, I don't, I don't want to use the word, word recur, recursion, um, but the uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick example. We, we started looking through how our customers use Event Orchestration and we found one of our most prominent users was one of the largest railroads in the US. And we were like, well, that's weird. So we started poking around in their environment to do it. And we actually found an orchestration called Build Train. And we're like, that's weird. So we click in it and what we actually do is they would actually take a train, a physical train, locomotive, The individual um, uh, train cars, the the cargo, the sightings, where it was going stuff, and effectively turn it into an event stream. And they would process this event stream through our event orchestration. And they would effectively, what it was doing was it would say, hey, based on the length of the train, the weight, um, where it's going, the sightings that's going on, these other things, all these other conditions, was this train, was it good to go? And we started of freak out for a second. We're like, you can't. We are not built for this, right? I do not need a call from the Transportation Security Administration saying, hey, you guys need to. And they're like, and so we actually talked to them. They're like, no, 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 this is just a, a way. It's a, it's a great, because of the way you've done this, because of you have the way you've built this logical flow of what we can do, we can effectively iterate our way through a train and say, hey, we got a problem. And, and it was a brilliant use case for them. And if you think about how many things domain that we have that are effectively trains, right? Of when we think about IT, how we deploy um, applications, how we deal with problems, how we think about event streams of things coming in—it's they're trains, right? Just in different way. So I was I, so that that really let me up. The second thing is beginning to think about AI ops as, and, and the way we look at things is what if we're just building extensions of observability, right? So when we get, you know, your observability, you, we spend all these time on logging standards and coding standards and other things that we do, and we're sending these alerts. But when I get these alerts, the, 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 you know, the, I, I, I start to ask two questions, right? One of the first questions I ask is, so what? You know, my dog, Fox 977 error, for example, earlier, you know, I send a high CPU alert hey, I, I'm getting my money's worth, I should be excited, I should be glad, right? If, if we think about containerization and Kubernetes and other things, I should always be pegged. That's what I. That's the whole point, right? Is to use as much of the systems as possible. Um, but in 2023, we're still sending high CPU alerts, but what does it mean, right? What do I do around it? So how do I extend observability to create context? The more interesting one and what I've come around to in this idea of, of these flow architectures is when I even come back to like my CICD pipelines, right? Um, I ship the app, right? Good stuff. Um, 70, 80, 90% of the customers I work with ship infrastructure as code, right? Because that's the whole point, we wanna make it simple. Um, every mon- every uh, modern monitoring tool, Datadog, New Relic, AppD, Dynatrace, others, um, have got ways that you can define your monitoring definitions as code, right? Usually via Terraform. Um, but then there's the, so what? Right? When that monitor fires, so what? Who should be notified? Is there a runbook for it? What diagnostics do I need from it? What are the potential remediations that I could take from it? Um, are, there, uh, are there certain links to stuff that I wanna add to that? How do I wanna enrich the event? What are the data sources that I wanna enrich from? Right, So what? all of that should be an extension of your CI/CD pipeline. So what so be able to take the Terraform definitions of that and drive that into CI/CD so that now when I ship my app, I'm all the way out to the app itself, the code it's going to run on, how I'm going to monitor it, and then how do I actually debug it and potentially fix it when something actually goes wrong. So yeah, that I'm a huge fan of the idea of, of rethinking Um, how we put stuff into pipelines and drive those pipelines with flow in different way.
0: Okay. That's an interesting idea. And I like where you're going with this. It actually, I think even sets up another of our future talks with Martin around platform engineering, because sort of that explaining like, Hey, your CICD pipelines, right. And you're, you're coming back to your infinite loop for DevOps where that end-to-end life cycle but you also have it for the whole stack right so the the app code itself the infrastructure that it's running on the monitoring that gets wired in at deploy time but then also thinking like next step which is when something goes wrong Um, so like that sort of becoming the the a fuller view of the the full stack that needs to be um continuously delivered this kind of connects a little bit to my last question. I'm going to try to squeeze in here, which you started to touch on when you're talking about building, kind of like defining that state engine with that conditional language, and um, you know, enriching events being one thing. But then you talk about taking actions, and this also kind of connects back to your original definition, which involves like how do you? Re- this is a system that needs to reduce toil at the end of the day. So. When you talk about like being part of that full stack that gets continuously deployed, um, you've got debugging as that last state and that needs to be event driven because it only really is triggered when there's something to debug. Yep. What's that next step that is part of that? Like how does that actually work?
1: Yeah, I, I, and this is this is an interesting point because when I when I talk to folks about things like you know automating diagnostics, well, of course everybody's got diagnostics, right? I mentioned earlier, you know, the network yeah. person that does that. But if you think about the way that normally happens today, right, it only happens when Dormain gets on the call, then she gets notified, you know, grabs out of bed, looks at the problem, tries to figure out, am I making a pot of coffee or am I just you know making a cup of coffee, um, and then figuring out you know kind of the next steps, and then you know you begin your your debug routine, right? Well, what if instead, right, that the second that that event actually came in, that we started grabbing that diagnostic information? Well, a couple of things start to happen. Number one, that's already waiting for domain, right? So now you're, you know, you don't even have to, as you're making your coffee, you can start floating through that and see, do you even need to start drinking it, right? or do you, Can you just skip ahead because it's actually already been fixed? So that's one is that the second thing is um, what would be really interesting is instead of even waking you up, what if instead we could actually make things like our automated remediation smarter? So let's say, you know, the most basic of, of remediation fail over the cluster, right? That's a real simple kind of thing that we would do all the time. Weirdly, we don't do it enough, even though that's what clusters are built for is failover. Um, but, you know, so if it's a healthy four way cluster and we want to fail over just because, you know, we can see this great. Why don't we do it? Right. Just and but the diagnostics are there because they have to tell us, well, we either fail over this cluster 17 times, you know, in the past two hours already. That's number one. Or, right. hey, you've only got two nodes left on this cluster. So you don't want to fail over to a single point of failure. So let's not do that. Um, so really informing your automation, right, in a different way. Um, the last thing, and, I, and this one is kind of not obvious, but it, but it's one I find a lot of value in, which is the whole point, and, and you talked about this, that kind of infinite cycle, right, of, of DevOps. We do plan, do, check, act, right? Um, And, you know, back to our planning piece is how do we avoid these things in the future? Well, we need to feed to problem management. And the way we do that is that when these diagnostics that we're out running, if I've waited the 15 or 20 minutes to engage a human somewhere in that loop, you know, think about our highly, you know, uh, dynamic environments that we have today. How meaningful is that Kubernetes information that I dump right then. How you know useful is that VMware container information that I dumped in? You know, I might have vMotioned already. The workload may already be someplace else by the come by the time I come back and check the diagnostics. So instead, if that we begin that diagnostic collection process right when the problem happens, that now my problem management is going to be much, much richer around the things that are there. So now I've got this orchestration solution that allows me to come in and pull together my automation, start to build some basic reflex actions, drive my diagnostics, begin to attempt my two or three most common remediation steps. And if those work, guess what? We don't wake anybody up, right? We we get to sleep through the night. Everything works. Um, I can come back and look at the problem statements tomorrow. But if I do wake somebody up, and I think this is the the wild thing about it. So I used to be uh, the technical lead on uh, the Iridium satellite project. Right, 78 satellites um, doing cross-linking, massive things. Uh, so I had to understand what was happening with satellite control, with ground systems, with network systems, uh, with orbital analysis, mission planning. I mean, it, incredibly ridiculously complex things of which I barely scratch the surface on, but I had to have an understanding of. What do you think the number one thing I would get woken up over? Dis space. Mm-hmm. This space. <laughs> you know? So here I was that had all of this you know, domain knowledge about all these rich things like I'm the guy you wanted to call. It's like, hey, we've got a cross link problem when, you know, 56 goes over 83. There's that South Antarctic anomaly problem. We bump it up out of the box, it's 300 meters off. We got to come up with a new. I'm your guy. Right. I know who to go talk to you for that stuff. Um, and I didn't mind getting you know, you don't mind getting woken up for that. You don't mind giving, you know, doing the hard work on that. This space. You know, and in 2023, I see it all the time. You know, we're waking up, you know, these incredibly brilliant engineers with all of this training, all of this deep domain expertise, all of this knowledge, and we're waking them up over stuff like that. So um uh, Nick Castle, one of my uh, colleagues, is solution engineer, he said, you know, uh, we were talking last year, he said, you know, you has been waking you up for 14 years. Isn't it time we stopped? Um, and I love that, right? Is how do we how do we take these these automation capabilities and start that to let machines do what machines are good at, so people will do what people are good at.
0: Yeah, I mean that's like it, what you're describing is, of course, you know, you're waking a person up for a novel problem, something new, something that's never been seen before, and requires that gray matter between the ears, as opposed to disk space or or you know something mundane is right. toil to be reduced. It's, you know, we we shouldn't have to be reinventing the wheel, um, you know, which brings up even like, the problem with actually bringing in humans sometimes to do that kind of work is that uh, different humans will do it different ways. And even the same human will do it different ways, you know, when there's three months has passed. And so right. your ability to drive consistency in your practices and uh, procedures, actually goes down the more you have humans touching things. Yeah. <laughs> humans are great creative beings, right? And that's part of uh, uh, part of the magic. But it also means that they're going to keep creating new solutions to things that maybe already have been solved. Um, on that note, I know we're kind of coming up at uh, like three quarters of an hour, so. I want to let you go. I want to thank our audience uh, for joining us today. Um, remind folks again, we'll have Heather Hinton next week. I dropped in a link also to that the Forrester process um, centric AI ops wave report that just came out very recently as an example of one of these sort of definitions floating out there. But I think you've heard some great things from Heath today. As just as you're looking at any of these sort of solutions around AI ops, you know, at the end of the day that framework of what is going to help you reduce noise, create context, remove toil and then also thinking about you know how is this going to be a watcher of watchers and um you know what is the what is my ability to set up rules is it easy is it fast how quickly can i can i get started and then i think it starts to get into some really interesting stuff that we talked about at the end around you know event driven uh architectures and how you can start to really you know, shift left, if you will, um, by bringing this into your CICD pipelines. So, um, this one even further than I could have possibly imagined. So, thank you, Heath.
1: Appreciate you, Dormain. You have a great one, okay?
0: All right. Take care in Germany. Safe travels home. Bye now. Okay. Right. Bye.